uh, Matt, what's up? What is up, man? It's October. It is October, which means it's my favorite time of the year. I love the fall weather. Unfortunately, we haven't really had it this year because the earth is dying. <laughs> it is. Yeah, it's been like 90 degrees uh, for a while out here in, in uh, good old Cincinnati. Same here. It's it's ridiculous. My grass was dying. Like, my entire yard went from green to brown in about two days. Today it rained, so I'm sure I'll have to go out and cut it again. But, man, it was looking pretty uh, pretty bad. That's not right. No, not not for fall weather. Like, the, the trees are so confused around here. Like, a few of them have, or- like, you know, the red or orange leaves, and most of them are still green, but the leaves are falling off. It just... <laughs> I don't know. It's messed up, man. <laughs> the earth is in revolt, I guess. <laughs> um... Anyway, this is the Kaiju Transmissions Podcast, a podcast dedicated to giant monsters and Japanese fantasy, and uh, since it is October, um, we are going to be doing a series of horror-themed podcasts for the month. Uh, Also, in between those, uh, if everything goes according to plan, we should also have an interview posted uh, between each of these, just because we have a lot of content to get out in October, so um, we have some authors and some actors and some folks that we'll be talking to as well. So uh, check those out um, if you uh, haven't uh, checked any of the stuff out that we've done. But yeah, keep an eye out for those as well. Um, so uh, we're gonna kick off our October uh, movie. Uh, recommendations, well, I don't know, some of the movies we watch, maybe we won't speak so highly of. I don't know, Matt, because you haven't seen, like, a lot of this stuff yet. All all of these. (laughs) Um, So our first episode is um, going to be Kaidan, which... Kaidan, no, no, no. Well, it's it's we, an archaic translation of the word kaidan. Which, but nobody nobody says kaidan in Japanese. They say kaidan. I'm just I'm just saying you're wrong. And for once, well, the Japanese title is kaidan, but the translated official U.S. title is kaidan. You you can't even. All right, whatever. You're pulling a mat though. I'm just letting you know. I, the dude, that's what they told me to say. <laughs> No one told you bird, to say Geegan. You forgot. Hey, listen, listen. Out there in uh, podcast land, you can follow us on Twitter at KT underscore podcast. Check us out on Facebook. Uh, Kaiju Transmissions. Just look us up. We're, we're in those two places. We also have a Tumblr, which uh, usually is what we post links to for the podcast itself. But, yeah, check us out. We always forget to do that. And then uh, also review us on iTunes. I heard that, like... If you do it, you get more candy for Halloween or something. I don't. Also, you can email us at kaijutransmissions at gmail.com. And we love getting emails. And we We do actually love getting emails. And we do respond to those emails. Now, I will say I'm sometimes bad about um, responding to Facebook. (laughs) But I I definitely. Bird, I heard something recently. Um, did you realize we got our first like bad review on iTunes? Can we can we talk? <laughs> can Do we, we have to? Isn't that just like glorifying them? It's not glorifying. I'm like I don't. But they called you like a white boy, and I was like I don't. Well, I don't no, think, I'm not. Uh, that's first what, of all. <laughs> no. Like but by, my birds... it, but by mentioning it, isn't that just like it's making us look like we're taking the low hanging fruit? I mean, it's got to be the bigger of, man. Wait, wait, but isn't that what the news news does every time they talk about Trump? Like, but they have to mention it because it is technically news. Well, that it's, he's the it's, president. <laughs> We're not the president. 
Yeah, you're you're right. Unfortunately. Anyway, back to, to Quidan. Apparently, Quidan. Eh, See, you can't even say the you're oh there's no W, but you can't say the last part. You say the last part like Dan, but it's Don. Like Donald. Shut. Yeah, whatever. Anyway, let's talk about the movie. <laughs> okay. Um, well, the movie is uh, one of the more well-known Japanese horror movies, especially from the time period it came out. Probably one of the first really acclaimed Japanese horror movies, um, at least here when it came here to the States, for sure. It was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film. It won the grand jur- uh, the Special Jury Prize uh, at Cannes that year. Um, Isn't it can? It, I'm just I, saying. It, it, it can, con, cans. <laughs> can. I've heard people say cans. Um, I've heard all of those. Okay. All right, just go ahead. Anyway. Um uh, so, anyway, it is uh, an anthology um, movie, uh, and that means it's a film made up of several stories, um, and I love anthology movies myself. Um, everything from your creep show to uh, trick or treat, to, I, I love that stuff, um, and this movie is no exception. Um, I first heard about this movie a long time ago. Uh, from Stuart Galbraith's Japanese science fiction, fantasy, and horror films. And I think the first time I saw it, I taped it off of Turner Classic Movies back in the VHS days. Uh, And, um, uh, yeah, I, I was immediately thought it was a really unique an interesting movie, and we're going to kind of give you the lowdown on it and do our usual drill. Uh, we're going to tell you about why it came to be, and we're going to do our own little review of each story and, and let you know how this one stacks up. Um, but uh, So this is based on a collection of stories called Quidon Stories and Studies of Strange Things, um, which is by Lafcadio Hearn and Matt. I understand you have some uh, information you would like to tell us about this gentleman, don't you? This dude lived the weirdest life uh, maybe ever. <laughs> so, so, he, so uh, yeah. So let's talk about him and uh, before we we talk about the movie here. So so give give me the lowdown on this fella. So. Basically, at some point, he was, like, abandoned by his family. He somehow ended up in uh, Cincinnati, Ohio, you know, my neck of the woods. And he well, actually what, he's a, He was a Irish-Greek, right? Yeah. yeah. He, he, he was. And apparently, well, 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 we'll get to some more here in a second. But, like, he ended up in Cincinnati uh, in journalism. He was influenced, actually, by Edgar Allan Poe. Like, he loved Edgar Allan Poe stories. And his job at the Cincinnati Inquirer, which, by the way, is still our newspaper now, um was to basically write about murders. Like, he he figured out and covered all the the local murders in the area. Um, He was fired from his position because, back in the day, uh, interracial marriage was illegal, and he happened to marry an African-American woman. So, uh, yeah, racism and stuff, (laughs) I guess. (laughs) But, yeah, he... um, was let go from his job because of his marriage and also because he was turning away from Catholicism, which uh, was a, apparently a big no-no at the time. And then from there, um, he actually got a divorce. He traveled some. He ended up in uh, Japan 
And he actually took a new name, which is uh, Yakumo Koizumi, which was his Japanese name. And that's and he actually what he did was he collected these folks like these folk tales, these stories, whether they were written down, he actually paid some people to translate their written stories for him, or he actually got some oral stories, oral traditional stories from like his wife, from the locals in the area. And those stories eventually became rewritten by him and then eventually released both in Japan, but also came to the United States. And I believe they came to the U S first. Um, he's credited actually as, uh, basically in the early 1900s during, I think it was the, the, uh, Japan Russo war when Japan won, when they beat Russia, um, a lot of people didn't know much about Japan and his books were actually credited as, um, kind of explaining kind of some basic his not history, but like basic culture of Japan because people were very interested at that time. So I thought that was a, a pretty cool tidbit, but yeah, man, think about this. We have a, a Greek guy writing, Japanese stories that first come to America and then re-released in Japan and then remade by a Japanese movie studio. Yeah. And uh, the interesting thing about this um, book is, uh, well, it's a collection. It's not just the, the, these four stories in the movie are just four out of quite a few yeah. in this, yep. this collection. And the interesting thing is, like you said, the stories are, some of them are his translations of old folk stories, and some of them are just things that people told him. Like the like, I think "Woman in the Snow" was a story that was told to him by a farmer. Correct. Um, yep. So yeah, it's really interesting, and uh, I guess um, I was reading that in that the book he even like. There's certain parts of some of these stories that he left the Japanese just because I guess he really, for as much time as he spent there and as much as he loved Japan and even married a Japanese woman, he still wasn't very fluent in the language. So in the book, there's parts where he either um, translates, he, he's either, he he says, like, I might have translated this wrong. Um Basically, what our uh, what John LeMay was saying about <laughs> his Lost Films book uh, and how the translation process was very difficult, and how in the book he said, you know, I some of this might not be right. Someone's probably going to come and correct me. Basically, he did the same thing with Quidon, and um, yeah, I, I, this is all. It's all very interesting because it's that's such a weird. Not only was the way that this book was written really bizarre, but like the life it took on and how it influ- influenced, you know, uh, horror in Japanese pop culture. It's all very strange. Yeah, his life is insane, man. I couldn't imagine like going through all the stuff that he went through, and then like, and then he was just you know fascinated with. Um, their culture. And he actually, like, he thought Japan was modernizing too fast. Like, he went to Japan because they were, he was in love with the fact that they were holding on to their old traditions. But at that time, they were actually kind of modernizing, like, the West. And he was very much against that. So by writing these stories, he was kind of capturing what he thought a big part of their history was. Yeah, and it's interesting that... uh that he his books are credited as still to this day being um you know referenced you know in in educating people about the the old ways of you know ancient japan very much so it's weird wild stuff matt yeah man um but uh so talking to the movie um uh about the movie uh 
So this was a movie produced by uh, a small company called Ninja Club. Uh, I guess uh, you know an independent production company and uh, distributed by Toho. Uh, and it has kind of a complicated backstory that uh, I will try to condense the best that I can. But um, it ended up rounding out a um, a three picture deal. Um, that Toho had with director Masaki Kobayashi, who directed this movie. And Kobayashi, if you're a, like a, a foreign film nerd, he's he's considered one of the greatest Japanese directors. Um, you know, uh, the Human Condition trilogy, Harakiri, Samurai Rebellion. Those are all movies that um, were big here in the states and still um, are very widely celebrated by people who are into world world cinema um and uh so <clears throat> he uh took a sharp turn with this movie um and uh from what i understand he was originally making it at shochiku at the time and they'd backed out um and so because of that he was about thir- they were the the movie before it even started rolling was about 30 million dollars in debt, um, and then they went to Toho to get out a loan, and a lot of their the the first um, uh, payments they made towards it all went into repaying Shochiku. So they're already like <laughs> tons of money in the hole before it even started sh- uh, uh, filming. And then um, you know, if if you watch the movie, you'll see how elaborate it is, um, very intricate, uh, and. Um, big kind of sets lavish set design so it looks like an expensive movie and uh so he they basically kept borrowing money from toho to get this thing done um and uh we'll talk about why toho really wasn't happy with that uh, especially after it came out but um the movie did get made uh i do know kobayashi said if he had known a lot of this headache, uh, or for or saw it happening. He he wouldn't have even done the the the, mil- the movie. But luckily, he did, and um, uh, he. But he was very frustrated also because since he wasn't signed on as a producer, some of this stuff was wasn't uh, relayed to him in time. So it sounds like there was just a lot of bad communication between the financers at Toho and you know the actual filmmakers. So. Uh, but luckily the movie was completed and, um, I guess this, this will bring us to, I guess the first story really, um, unlike a lot of horror anthologies, it doesn't have that wraparound segment of, you know, you'll see like, uh, in Creepshow, there's a kid flipping through a comic book or, Mm -hmm. you know, in Black Sabbath, you have Boris Karloff doing an introduction to each segment. We don't have that here. We just go from one story to the next, um, the movie opens with these ink splashes in water and that are very colorful and surreal. And, um, that brings us into the black hair, which was adapted from a story called the reconciliation, which is in, uh, in, uh, Hearn's collection called shadowings. Um, so that's not necessarily taken directly from, uh, the, the Kaidan, um, 
collection. But uh, gist of it is, um, each one of these stories runs about 45 minutes long, which means the movie is about three hours. Um, And if you are a very busy person or don't feel like sitting down watching something for three hours, it's cool that it's an anthology because you can watch it like it's a TV, like episodes almost. Um, But the black hair is about... um, a, uh, a a masterless samurai who is living in kind of a, more of a slum area with his wife, who's a weaver, and he leaves her for uh, a rich woman. Basically, he's a gold digger, um, <laughs> and he wants he wants uh, higher social status, and he wants to take on this this uh, new position as a, a district governor in this new area. And um, we we see that despite having this wealthier status, he is finding himself uh, missing and having flashbacks and things to his old wife. And, you know, his new wife is a little bit more cold and more vain. And he uh, basically starts to think, hey, I think I was happier when I was poor and with this other woman. Um, And then, of course, the new wife figures all this out and yells at him, and then he goes back to his old home. And uh, surprisingly enough, uh, it's it's a dilapidated home. It's a few years later. Surprisingly enough, he finds old wife is still around, and they have a nice talk, um, you know, they have a, a great night together and he wakes up, uh, and she, he, it turns out he's been sleeping next to her corpse and her hair, her long, long black hair that is in the title, um, is, is what he's like cradling and it seems to be that it's perhaps the vengeful ghost of, of the, the betrayed first wife, and he starts freaking out, and uh, he turns white and gray and paralyzed with fear, and that's where our story ends. Um, Matt, what did you think of the black hair? Dude, this movie's crazy. Um, the guy, he seems like, at the very the very outset, he seems like a giant dick. <laughs> He's, his wife's begging him to stay, and then he basically says the poverty is too much because they're obviously living in this like dilapidated house. Everything is like falling apart. The wood's rotting, and he leaves his wife to take on uh, a job as a samurai for for another lord. Gets married to that lord's daughter because of that. Gets rich, and then his new wife uh, is a horror. Like she is described by the narrator as being very cold, and. Uh, and then they ha- kind of have it out, and it's just like – then he and throughout the movie, or throughout this portion of the story, I guess, what I was really interested in was how they intercut him longing for his previous wife. And there was like just a really extreme sadness <laughs> to this whole story. Then he goes back, and he's like hallucinating and stuff. It was crazy. Um, the hair – the last scene is actually the hair like wrapping around his neck, and that's just how it ends. So it's kind of ambiguous. I would assume he died. I don't. I don't know. Um, but I thought it was really well done overall. And, um, 
what the assistant director for this film, he actually, when the interview on the Criterion disc, he talks about how like the whole foundation um, for these movies was the sadness of humanity. Like, I guess Kobayashi wasn't actually interested in making um, a ghost story per se or a horror film. What he wanted to do was make approach it from like a drama story, but they happen to be tales about ghosts. And like that really shows in this first one because like I just felt sad for the guy the entire time. I don't know how you felt, but I just felt very depressed. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, well, yeah, it's it's. I mean, it's it's a thing that kind of a theme throughout. I mean, kind of like what you said about Kobayashi and his motivations behind doing this is um, it's. It's uh, it's it's about how flawed and sad we are, um, just as people. Uh, and I mean, the the most um, I guess emotionally charged part of the movie for me anyway is the part where he comes home and he reconciles with the first wife, uh, and they have that night together. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but then you realize maybe. You know, he he's not he's he doesn't spoon feed you everything. You know, maybe that was just her vengeful ghost, and it had just kind of showed what it really was the next night. Um, but no, it's 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 a it's a great way to start the the film. Um, a couple things that we should get out of the way now, because uh, this ties into something I want to say about this story is the. Um, Throughout the whole movie, both two two things we we should talk about are the art direction and the score. Yep. Um, the score was really uh, really interesting and unconventional. Um, it was by Toru Takamitsu, and he used a lot of just sounds to make the music. So I mean, he would split um, uh, uh, like a a plank of wood and use those creaking sounds to make the music or he would like uh find different rock combinations and like hit the rocks together and those would make certain sounds um and uh a lot of the time he uses it to disorient you um like for example the last part where the hair comes alive and he's like freaking out and he's like falling through like he's, he's like falling through like floorboards and walls and stuff and and the 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 sound of the wood breaking you don't hear until after like he falls through it and it's it's used to kind of bring you into like the environment and the uneasiness it's made to like make you feel weird um and uh the score is probably displayed best in the next two segments but it's something that is such a crucial part of this movie that it's only appropriate that we we talk about it um and how how much uh, it kind of makes a difference with this movie um matt do you have anything you want to say about the score um or the composer or anything like that yeah i mean you're right it, it the the score there are times when it really does disorient you and the film has long periods of silence and that's actually intended like we're, we're sort of not used to that i think in western cinema at least modern audiences because we expect every piece of the movie to have something behind it <laughs> as a perfect example or like you know what's with the trailers nowadays like every trailer is some old song remixed and slowed down yeah I, anyway uh but yeah there's there's long periods of 
silence uh, in the film, which is really different. Like, it catches you off guard, and then you hear sounds, you're like, what the fuck? <laughs> what is that? Um, it works really well, and, and as you mentioned, I think it is used to a better effect in the next two pieces of the story. But, yeah, it's, it's used extremely well. Yeah. Um, and I think this is something we're going to be talking about with every story in here is also the art direction. Um, first of all, it's beautiful. Um, yeah. And this, this Criterion Blu-ray, uh, is, it might be, it's, it's amazing looking. The transfer on here is amazing. I mean, it looks like it was shot yesterday. Like it's, it really does. <laughs> it, it, in the colors pop, it's perfect looking. Um, and the, the thing about this art direction and, um, Something I like about old movies in general and, you know, the pre-CGI days is so much of what you're watching is in camera. So, you know, you have your matte paintings and your, you know, glass panes that are painted and, you know, big elaborate sets. Um, and this movie takes all those ideas to an extreme um, because not only, I mean, yeah, they're elaborate, um, but they're they're intentionally unrealistic looking um, they're intentionally exaggerated. They they aren't meant to look real, and I, I think that and um, that's something that I, I think Kobayashi really got from Japanese theater and things like Bunraku uh, and 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 Japanese puppet um, theater. Uh, that kind of artificiality. Um, he also loved Picasso. Yeah, apparently. yeah. So he is, I, <laughs> yeah, he, the surrealism, um, and uh, it's it's deliberately artificial looking, and it's gorgeous to look at. It looks different from anything that you'd be used to, and um, it, it, and it's all done in camera. Uh, and you know it's it's interesting. I don't know who would make a movie like that these days. I mean, you you can do all this stuff with the green screen and everything, but it, it's not gonna look it's not gonna look the same. And um, and I, I think that mentality even goes into their kaiju movies. You know, there's that often repeated story about Subaraya. Uh, in the horse in Frankenstein Conquers the World. Well, why not just use a real horse and superimpose it? Well, the fake horse, is it, it, it's, it looks more interesting. And uh, I think that that's also been a source of disconnect between the, the kaiju movies and the Japanese movies and our stuff, because here we really place an emphasis on realism. Uh, but this movie definitely doesn't. And it, this movie is all those things I said, taken to the extreme. Um, and it's really something that I, I like, who does that now? Um, nobody. Yeah. Like Wes Anderson does it. If you've ever seen Wes Anderson movies where he'll pan out and it'll go through like an entire set that, it, I mean, every now and then you get something like that, but not, not to the, the level that you get here. Yeah, um, this is noted as being Kobayashi's first color film, and for, for it to look as incredibly crisp and amazing as it does, um, it's it's honestly, it really is a spectacular 
film to watch as far as the color palettes that they use. And actually, Kobayashi, the way that he picked out color schemes was he would flip through art books. I mentioned Picasso. Like, he would flip through different art books, and what he would do is he would cut out what he liked, and then he would glue, glue that in a scrapbook, and that would set the theme for the sets. And then when it, when the people would make the costumes, they kind of knew what his thought process was and what colors they should use. So I thought that was such, like, an interesting idea. And, and the colors are so, like, you know, exaggerated, and they're just crisp been beautiful and especially like in the next the, the next story um the woman of the snow there's eyes painted in, in the backdrops and stuff it's just it looks incredible yeah and i mean some movies you just need to see in the best version possible like um so i have the the stuart galbraith book in front of me and i want to read to you matt how he first saw this movie so Stewart says, I first saw the film on a battered 16-millimeter pan-and-scan print, which lost the original Toho Scope photography, and the colors had been so faded that nearly everyone and everything was a dull pink color. Can you imagine watching this movie like that? No, that would, that would yeah. That's <laughs> basically, like... <laughs> Oh, that's, that's, that's not good. Yeah. <laughs> like, imagine the world of difference watching it like that and watching it like this would be. I think the best thing about this film, honestly, are the sets. That's like my favorite part. Yeah. Yeah, I love the aesthetic. Um, And visually, Matt, uh, this next story, The Woman of the Snow, is probably my favorite. I just, I love the way it looks. uh, And um, I love the way the music is used. uh, But um, so this is, I did the last one. So so you tell us about Woman of the Snow, because this is a good one. Yeah, so basically we have a woodcutter named uh, Minokichi, and he's out with his buddy, um, and they're they're actually traveling back. It opens up with him traveling back through through a blizzard, and they kind of get they're struggling. They get kind of get stopped in the snow, and he wakes up to see um, Yuki, who is this uh, incredibly pale Japanese woman, but she's got her like kimono thing on, and she's terrifying because as he as he's watching her. She approaches his buddy and she like breathes on him this like um kind of like this it looks like a mist and it, it, it said in the story it essentially drains the guy's blood so like he lo- he loses all color and he dies and as she approaches him he's freaking out and she says well I'm taking pity on you because you're young and then she and she says don't ever tell anybody what you've seen because if you do I will find out and then I will kill you. Um, and that kind of leads back to what we were talking about with the eyes, like every, like a lot of the shots have, um, the match shots have like eyes painted in the background. It's, it's really pretty, but also very haunting at the same time. And it kind of shows that, Hey, I'm watching you thing. So later on, um, he, it, it's some years later, sometime later, and he's walking past this woman and she's saying that she basically has no family and she has nowhere to go and she's heading into Edo. And he says, well, hey, why don't you come stay with me? And eventually his mother takes a liking to her. Um, they get married. The, the townspeople remark that, you know, she's a wonderful wife who hasn't aged a day. And that was kind of a unique thing because nobody, no mother-in-law talks about their daughter-in-law that way. Apparently in this time, that was one of the notes they have in the film. Um, and then later on one night, their kids are in bed and he tells this story, the original story about meeting the, the woman of the snow to his wife, not realize because, and the reason he does that is because the light hits her face in one particular scene. And it reminds him of that woman because they look so similar. Well, he tells her that story, not realizing they are the same person. And so 
she threatens to kill him, but says that only because of the children am I going to let you live. If they ever have any reason to complain about you, I'll come back and kill you. And then she like disappears, leaving him heartbroken. And one of the things about this film and this set of stories, um, I will say the use of lighting is incredible. Like the way that the light moves on from the screen and the camera and it changes so drastically at times, it's really well done. And that's something I just like don't see a ton of in uh, modern, especially Western films. And it's used to really good extremes here, and it works incredibly well. Plus, as I mentioned, like the set pieces are beautiful. Um, also, like this story is just again one of those gut wrenching tales. Like the guy falls in love with somebody, and then she abandons him <laughs> because he outs her as like a ghost. Well, not only that, but uh, it's sad for the Snow Woman who. Um is that's actually a popular like i guess mythical well the, yep. the snow woman the yuki ana is actually a yokai yes um, and we will get into yokai pretty heavily uh later in the month um and you will see her in in some of those but um but it's also heartbreaking for her because all she wanted was to live the life that she ended up getting this human life where she's loved and has a family and a husband and everyone loves each other but just due to the nature of what she is you know by him telling her that he has taken away everything that she wanted as well and it's like you said it's not a it's it's just it's it's a sad story for everybody involved um and you know the village loves her uh loving family like perfect family that like you when you imagine like who's the happiest family you know <laughs> that's what they have and because he after all these years breaks this promise from this weird surreal event this encounter he had with this this otherworldly creature it's all taken away. Um, and that also fits in, you know, the theme of betrayal that we talked about with the black hair. Um, and yeah, uh, this one is actually probably my favorite of the four. Um, this is where all the things that I really like about, you know, what I was saying about the art direction, the music, this is where I think everything is utilized um, the most. So like you said, I love those early scenes of them walking through the blizzard and it's this yellowish blue and greens and these big painted backgrounds with these eyes and that, you know, it's foreshadowing like you're going to be watched. Um, and then, you know, uh, when they show up and, um, at that hut and there's like the the this this the pond outside with the running water it all looks amazingly fake in the best way um and the, <laughs> and, and the score yeah. this is the one where they use a lot of rocks slamming together and um you know augmented sounds um and I really can't say enough about it. Uh, we, we, we probably sound kind of crazy talking about the score, <laughs> but it's one of those things that you really have to hear to like understand what we're talking about. And it, it's out yeah. there as an album, also. Um, but yeah, it's just it's good, great stuff all around. Um, and what you were saying, uh, in kind of a recurring motif in kind of the staginess and the kind of artificiality of it, like you t- you, were, you mentioned the part where uh, the spotlight hits her and it reminds him of encountering the Yuki Ona, but 
it's uh, things like that happen at other points in the movie too, through all the stories where if there's oh, yeah. a certain character that is um, kind of taking center stage, like a spotlight, almost like what you'd see in a stage play surrounds yeah. them. And um, it's just really visually really creative the way they do everything in this movie. Um, and uh yeah, no, I and I I just love this story too. You know, promise you won't say anything about me, and then the in one moment he lets his guard down to the person that he loves and trusts the most, and it's like he shouldn't have done that, you know. Um, but yeah, this is a just a wonderful story, and um, uh, it was actually loosely readapted. Um, are you familiar with the show Tales from the Dark Side? I am. Yep. It's an anthology series produced by George Romero. It was an offshoot of Creep Show, basically. But they made yeah, a yeah. they made the Tales from the Dark Side movie. Did you ever see that? I think I've seen parts of it. I, I don't. I'm a terrible person and I haven't um, seen all of it. The last segment in it is called Lovers Vow, and it's basically the same story, only instead of the 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 Snow Woman, it's um. <laughs> In the beginning, this guy encounters like a a, a, a gargoyle, a monster gargoyle, uh, like the ones you see outside of buildings come yeah, to life. Yeah. Gargoyle, and it basically it's the same story. Happy family, and then he tells the wife, and uh, suddenly the wife mutates and like basically the her flesh like a gargoyle bursts out of her flesh in like a body horror like way and <laughs> and and she's like you promised and and she kills him and not only that but their kids turn into gargoyles too and then they fly to the top of a building and they turn to stone it's pretty cool <laughs> but um but yeah that's often considered a remake of this segment uh and, uh, yeah, no, I, this, it's just a great story, and this is the one that's probably always stuck with me the most. And, of course, like I said, the, the snow woman you see in a lot of J- supernatural Japanese stuff, like the yokai movies. Uh, in Akira Kurosawa's Dreams, uh, there's a whole segment about the snow woman. So um, so she's been around in, in different capacities. Um what do you where would you so far anyway uh how how is this one compared to the other four for you is this one that you consider a stronger one or see i'm weird i like i really like uh in a cup of tea which i know is like the shortest and often considered kind of the weakest of the bunch um this is probably the most complete and uh, for brevity's sake, like Hoichi the Earless is really, really long, but has the the most beautiful set pieces I think I've ever seen in any movie. Like, and that's what I love about that particular story. But like for this one, I think it's the most complete. So yeah, I I, I like it. I like it more than the first one. Mhm. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Um, Hoichi the Earless. Almost has the simplest story of all of them, but it's the longest. And there's actually yeah. there, there's actually a reason for that. And I guess it's my turn to go on with Huichi. But um, this is the story of uh, Huichi, who uh, plays a biwa, and um, his specialty is um, in Japan. I don't know. Do you know what the term for it is? There's people who basically their job is to sing stories. 
I don't know what the term actually is, but you see it often in movies, and if you're a fan of Japanese cinema. Yeah, uh, right, yeah. But um, his, his, his thing is he sings The Tale of the Haiki, which is about the Battle of Dan no Ura, which was a fight between the Terra and Minamato clans um, during the Genpei War. Um, don't ask me what any of that really means, because <laughs> I'm not a Japanese history expert, and I only know it from, like, this movie. But... Um, uh, but that's like what he's known for, and uh, the the this story starts out with a long. Um, basically, you hear him singing the song, and you he, you see it accompanied by um, the story on the screen, and it's this is also a super exaggerated, artificial looking version of basically a war at sea. Um, and uh, again, uh, amazing looking art direction, just the costumes, the colors. Uh, I mean, it, it, it just the way it was shot. And, and this was shot in basically they had made a gigantic water tank and they filmed this on a giant water tank Um and really, like like I said, a very expensive movie. So they were making sets out of, like, old Nissan car plants and, like, air, airplane hangers. So, I mean, when I say these sets were huge, like, they're huge. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, they, they basically made a war at sea on, on a, a giant water tank. Um, and uh, it intercuts between the live action of, of of the actors and everything with a painting, a giant painting of this battle, um, and it's accompanied by uh, by Hoichi singing and playing his biwa. Um, but uh, uh, he um, he lives in a Buddhist temple, and uh, at some point, uh, the spirits of of this dead clan. I guess at some point they they found out that he sang that battle really well, and so the ghosts kind of come and they say, "Hey, come sing for us! Uh, it, 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 you're singing with a, it, to a royal family. It's going to be great. Um, you know, you're going to be in this this te- nice temple. You're going to sing for us." And he starts doing that for them every night, and then the other priests and, and stuff in the, in this Buddhist temple are like, this is kind of weird. Like, why is he doing this? And then, um, he leaves in the middle of the night in a storm one day and the, the head priest who's played by Takeshi, uh, um, Shimura, who obviously people listening would know is Dr. Yamane, but you know, in a ton of Honda movies and a ton of Kaiju movies, a lot of Kurosawa stuff, people know who he is. Um, but, uh, they send out for him. So they, they follow him and it turns out they just he's singing in like a cemetery basically they're like what is he doing <laughs> so basically they pick him up and they bring him back and they're like I, they're, they're like we're pretty sure you were singing for ghosts um, and you see they this is where they utilize the uh, I forget what they're called but they're basically um, in Japanese myth and yokai it's it's basically a, a fireball that's like the disembodied soul of someone, and you see those flying around. So that's how they know they're in a place they shouldn't be. And so to protect Huichi, they uh, paint onto him um, the text, uh, which is called the Heart Sutra. 
again, I'm not a scholar. I don't know exactly what it is, but basically, it's a Buddhist text. Yeah, that's about uh, yeah, as much Buddhist as I know. text, which. Um, <laughs> It's one. Of, I, I do know that it's it's one of the most recognized, uh, ro- most recognizable, and one of the, considered one of the most influential. But that's about all I got. Yeah. Well, yeah. So they painted on his whole body, and um, I, I guess um, in a lot of these uh, tales, these folklore stories, that's actually a fairly common way of um, warding off spirits so i mean like it's it's to them what you know uh, silver bullets killing a werewolf or something is for us or garlic with vampires so um it's not too foreign um to their culture but to us we don't know what it is but yeah that's actually uh, supposedly a very common way of doing that um so they say okay huichi you gotta sit here when the spirit comes who's played by uh tetsuro tamba who uh, is awesome. Is, yes, who's awesome. <laughs> and uh, I think he's been in many movies that we've reviewed on the podcast. But he comes and he's like, Huichi, where are you? Like, he's like, where, what are you doing? Where are you? Why aren't you here? And he's like, well, I can't leave empty-handed. Where is he? And then they, he notices a pair of floating, two floating ears. And this is because the, uh, the priests did forgot or neglected to paint his ears. So he's like... Well, I can't come back and show them that, uh, you know, I have to fulfill what I was here. At least if I have the ears, it's better than nothing. It's proof that I have something. So he rips poor Huichi's ears off um, and brings them back. And um, uh, that's that's more or less the ending. Um, and then they go away. And then Huichi... Um, is now known among the community as Huichi the Earless, and uh, he's actually done very well for the temple because of this incident. And you know, he, his his story becomes very popular. People bring them food and gifts and money, uh, and the and it ends with him telling the story to a, a, a big group. Um, and uh, and the temple is shown, you know, they have a lot of food and, and they're they're doing well for themselves. But uh, all at the sacrifice of poor Huichi's ears. Um, uh, and I didn't really think about it, but I was listening to the commentary on the Blu-ray and um, the the commentator said that uh, it's it, it could be read that Huichi is actually performing for more spirits at the end, which I didn't really think about, but kind of like the black hair and Kobayashi yeah, I isn't, can see that. yeah, Kobayashi isn't spoon feeding you. So it, it, it's another thing that is kind of open and you can think about and is, you know, kind of fun to, to discuss. Um, but no, Hoichi the Earless is probably the most iconic um, story from this, just because Hoichi, he's painted head to toe in this text, uh, and it's it's very delicately designed. It's it's very it's done it's calligraphy, and uh, that image of Hoichi with all the text covering him it was used in a lot of posters and stills, and it's probably the most well known image from this movie. Um, but uh, I've been I've been going on about uh, Hoichi for a while now. So Matt, what what did you think of this this story here? So as I mentioned before, like the, the story is very simple, straightforward. But because of the performances, um, it's also the longest story by by a lot. If I complained about anything, I felt like 
it was almost too long. However, there's a genuine spectacle. Like you, you are treated visually in this by all this different sets, the crazy colors. Like there's this beautiful red backdrop during the battle sequences. Um, it's really just stunning to, to see visually overall the story itself. I mean, as I mentioned before, very straightforward. Um, it is interesting. And, um, also one thing we haven't noticed so far, which I completely forgot about Hoichi, like his appearance, the more that he plays, cause he actually goes out like three or four different times before they, the, um, the temple finds out what he's doing. He's getting like paler as the movie goes on, which also happened in, in, uh, the Snowblood story at the very end, the guy's like he's getting almost looks older as as he's escaping from what would be the ghost of his um, wife. So like, there's a lot of very subtle makeup in this, and that's one thing that they they purposely tried to do. Um, they they tried to show as people's condition worsened, the their actual appearance would also worsen to match that, which I thought was kind of a cool idea. But yeah, it's, it's I mean it, it's a good straightforward story. I think that. It, it feels long to me, and that would be my only complaint. Yeah, um, uh, yeah, it does. It, but it's, but like you said, it's all it's, it's it's longer, but it's also all like good stuff. Like uh, I've mentioned, I, I don't know if people can tell by this point, but I I've mentioned Creep Show a few times, but. My favorite segment in Creepshow is actually the crate, which is, like, way longer than the other ones. But everything in it about it that's, like, longer is all cool. <laughs> so it's like you, I don't really care so much. Um, I do know that uh, some of the Hoichi's story, like, in the flashback, I do know some of that is some of the stuff that got cut when um, they were recutting the movie for, for foreign markets, which kind of makes sense because uh, that's probably... Out of anything in the movie, that that's probably the part that's gonna not gonna play the best to uh, Western audiences outside of just the cool visual aesthetic. Um, Agreed. Uh, but yeah, no. Before we move on from Hoichi, I do want to mention um, it's uh, this is another one where I think the lack of sound kind of. N- helps with the mood uh particularly um during the flashback there's a scene where um uh the lady of one of the clans jumps into the water which is a cool like blood red water yes uh, with her with her baby and then a bunch of people follow her and instead of hearing the splashes of them landing in the water or anything it's just silence and you know a little bit of the the score and it's just it's it's somehow more effective than if you were to hear it. Um, it yeah, that, that's a pivotal scene because it's actually she's jumping in the water with the baby emperor. So obviously that's a, a very big deal because that's the end of their clan, effectively. Right. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the movie's full of stuff like that. Like what well, we mentioned in the the Snow Woman when she leaves him at the end, the door you don't hear her, the door slam. It's stuff like that, and it, they sound like little things, but when you watch the movie, you you notice them. They stick out like a sore thumb, and it really adds to just kind of the weird, uneasy, surreal like feeling of the movie. Um, you, you mentioned a couple times, you just talked about Lady of the Snow, and you talked about the different cuts of the movie. I think it's a good time to talk about that, because I know when they went to the uh, the Cannes Festival, Lady of the Snow is what they actually had to cut out um, to make it under the two-hour runtime. Yeah, well, I, I guess it's interesting, yeah, there's basically three cuts of the movie. There's the full 
original Japanese version, which is uh, the Criterion Blu-ray is actually the first time that version's been commercially available here. Um, there's the international version, which is uh, a, a version they tried to submit to Cannes, and they said no. And so then there's a two-hour version that they did get into Cannes, um, but the, yeah, the, the international version that they tried to pass to them is the one that was mostly available and the Criterion DVD is that version. But, um, but yeah, the, it's interesting that that story is the one that got taken out, isn't it? Yeah. Cause that's like, I, I like that story a lot. So I figured they would have cut out in a cup of tea cause it's kind of the shortest and has, maybe the least substance to offer and, and lady of the, like lady of the snow, like she's, that is such a visual, interesting, um, story compared to the last story, which is still interesting visually, but like not nearly as much. Like to me that, that in, in a cup of tea is kind of the odd man out in my mm-hmm. opinion, but yeah, I'm sure it was mainly runtime. Yeah. And well, I, yeah. And I, I guess when they, when they submitted it to, to can, they, it was, they had a very strict rule at the time that they couldn't do anything over two hours. So he pleaded with them and they said no. And then they were like, they cut it down to the 161 minute cut. And then that cut out some things. Like I said, those flashback things and and stuff like that. Uh, And they were like, no, it's still too long. And then they just cut out woman of the snow. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, but even then, it still won the the special jury prize that year at the festival. So I mean, uh, it it must have worked somehow. I I can't imagine watching this movie without it. But um, but 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 whatever. Um, so uh, in a cup of tea, uh, Matt, you said you really like this one, and it's your it's your turn to give us the rundown. So um, talk to us about in a cup of tea, which is the fourth and final segment of Quiet Yeah, it's uh, this is I, I dig this one uh, quite a bit. Uh, it basically starts off with an armed attendant of a samurai. Um, named Sekinai, and he's basically thirsty. He goes and he fills a, a cup, a large, basically a water bowl with tea, and as he's looking down into the, the bowl, he notices every time he does, he sees a face, and at first he can't believe it. He pours out the water. He tries it again. sees the face come back. He shatters that particular bowl, goes back, and he does this like two or three times, and then eventually he just kind of like drinks the water with the face in it. Um, he's drinking a ghost essentially is what he's doing the next day. Um, he's confronted by the ghost in his room. Uh, the ghost comes and says, you know who I am, don't you? And he's like, dude, I have no idea who you are. And then he puts it together. This was the, the face that he'd seen in the tea. And the, 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 the guy basically says, Hey, you actually hurt me very badly. And so the guy gets uh, second eye, the armed attendant, he gets ticked off and he draws his weapon. He attacks the ghost and he can't hit him. The ghost is disappearing to different sides of the room and then eventually just disappears and goes away. The next night, um, three of the ghosts, I guess, servants or peers or whatever say, hey, you hurt. And the guy's name is uh, Shikibu Henai. That's the ghost name. And you hurt him. He will be back on, I think it's the the 16th of the month, and he will take his revenge. And again, our main character, Sekinai, gets ticked off and tries to attack him. Um, And can't do it. And then basically... 
Um, that's how it's, this is a story within a story. So there's somebody at the very beginning narrating the story and then stops and they show you this portion of the fight. And then the story kind of ends. And basically the, the brunt of the story is at the very beginning. Um, there's an author who is basically writing a story and somebody's coming to get the finished piece. And so the narrative breaks off. The guy reading the story says, um, that he wants the audience to basically envision the ending because none of them would satisfy you otherwise. And, uh, that's, and then basically the guy reading that says, okay, well, where's the author at now? And then we're panned to in the room. There's a bunch of, uh, there's a big bowl of, of tea or whatever. And the author is hidden in this big barrel of tea. So it's implying that he is now a ghost. Um, Interestingly enough, the the original story itself, where it ends off, is it ends off during the fight um, instead of having the, the ending with the author and the T. So I thought that was, you know, there's some differences in the story. Um, but, like, it's it's so quick and brisk, and there's some really cool use of lighting that I really enjoy quite a bit. It's, uh, it's interesting that... Um yeah, this one does. This one has like its own kind of wraparound segment where you know you start with you see the author writing the story, and then it flashes back to um, you know when we get the actual story, um, uh, and uh, it's interesting that you know it, it, a lot of people have said you know what what is Kobayashi trying to say by leaving things so so open and. Um, uh, the, the basically um, a lot of people uh, like the booklet in the Criterion disc uh, says, for example, the storyteller disappears into his own story, becoming himself another reflection, as if the only way to escape from this counterworld is by way of a tale that omits any final explanation by simply flinging itself down like an empty cup. Um, so I don't. It's very interesting to think that this is the way that they decided to end the movie. Um, and tonally, it's a little different from the other ones. This one is a lot more. I think this one's a lot more deliberately comedic, um, and it doesn't have the same kind of weighty tragedy uh, that the other ones do. Um, but it's oddly fitting in a way. Um, I don't know. It's hard to explain. It didn't feel like it. it it doesn't really belong there at all. Like there's still some very, like, uh, as the ghost appears in the room, you mentioned the, uh, the spotlight, like that happens quite frequently and you get some really cool vantage points, like from shot behind the ghost, um, as he's being attacked, like there's some really cool camera work and some great lighting. Also, there's some familiar faces like, um, Hideo Amamoto appears in this. I think June Tazaki is in this as well as one of the kind of random guards that appear later on. Um, so it, it's a really, I don't know. I think I like it because after the, the previous entry that was so long, like this is so brief and short, but kind of sweet. It's like, yeah. it just, it's a nice way to end it. Yeah. It's sending, it's definitely sending you out on a lighter note. Um, even though I guess you could say Huichi the earless didn't end completely awful for everyone, but yeah, it's, this is definitely sending people out on a much lighter note than, you know, what they would have if it ended with any of the other stories. Um, Lafcadio O'Hearn, the guy that wrote the, this story in the original story, the, basically this is how it ends. The writer says, I am, un, I'm 
<clears throat> I am able to imagine several possible endings, but none of them would satisfy the Occidental or Western imagination. I prefer to let the reader attempt to decide for himself the possible consequence of swallowing a soul. So, like, that's how the story ends in the actual story. There's no scene with the writer. There's no scene of the guy inside the big barrel, um, which is interesting that, you know, obviously Kobayashi decided to to add that part in. Um I actually think I like the added part in rather than just having it end on like an open note kind of thing. I think I like the other, the, the movie's ending better. Yeah. Um, I agree. And you know, it's interesting. I'm not quite sure. Maybe it's a cultural thing that I'm not picking up on, but is there a thing about people's souls being like in cups <laughs> of drinks uh, that I'm not aware of? Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't know of any. I'm sure there's somebody out there that probably could like educate us on that. Um, I know there, there's a thing in Japanese culture where like somebody dies with something in their possession and like their soul is attached to that thing. Right, I don't right. know if that's a. Pl- I don't know if it's a play on that or not. I'm just saying like I. I'm woefully uh, inarticulate in the ways of cup ghosts. Okay. All right. Um, yeah. Uh, so am I, but. Um, I guess if there's a, another theme you could talk about where all four stories would meet, it's in um, the dangers of, advent- I guess, I don't know if I want to say adventure, but what's beyond the human world and beyond our understanding. Uh, if if um, if this guy, I guess, leaving your boundaries, if this guy didn't leave his wife for, uh, you know, to get rich and you know he wouldn't none of that would have happened uh if the guy didn't uh break his promise to a supernatural being he would have a family if uh hoichi didn't wander out to entertain the ghosts he would have his ears and if this guy didn't just decide to drink a cup with a face in it None of that would have happened. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> you know, on some level, you have people kind of messing with things that, in, I guess, inappropriately or for the wrong reasons uh, and kind of meddling a little bit with things that they might not understand fully. And I think that that's something that kind of carries through all four. Yeah, I definitely could, could see that. I just think... Um The last one doesn't really feel sad as much as like WTF did I just see like (laughs) like what? Um, But the other three definitely feel more just like very sad to me. Definitely. Um, Apparently, by the way, Google searching cups with ghosts like is a thing. It auto completed that search. So like, there's obviously a bit here that we don't aren't connecting. <laughs> wow. Okay. It's a thing, dude. You know you. <laughs> well, are you? Do you know what it is? <laughs> no, I mean, I'm not able to. Uh, I, it's all I get the, is I, all I'm getting is photos of actual cups with ghosts on them. But like, obviously, if there's that many pictures, I'm seeing the same pictures, by the way. But like, yeah. I don't know. Maybe someone a more educated listener can help us out with that one. I think we I'm cracked. Sure. I think we cracked everything but that, as far as this movie goes. <laughs> um. Uh, so, uh, no, I mean, it was, uh, I hadn't seen this movie in a long time. Um, I actually don't think I saw it since I had the old DVD, which was the 160 minute cut. And, uh, it was a real 
pleasure revisiting it and seeing the full Japanese uh, original version. Um, I really like it. Um, so, Matt, how many uh, disembodied ears or <laughs> cup ghosts, take your pick, do you give Quidon out of five? I think I'm going to go like four and a half. Um, I think the only thing that the, the length is something that like could bother some people, but like it is, it is truly an experience and a visual spectacle, um, to, to watch the film. Plus the score, as we mentioned, there, there was create creepy, like silence in the film followed by sounds. Like it's really more of an experience than like just watching a movie straight out to me anyway. Yeah. And because of that, because of how beautifully it's shot, like I, you got to see it at some point. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, I'm going to go four and a half too. I think it's not that I don't like in a cup of tea, but I don't like it as much as the others. And I think if it had just a little bit more of that special something, maybe visually or emotionally, it would pro this would be an easy five, but it's a four and a half. Uh, it's excellent. Um, and uh, this Blu-ray needs to be seen to be believed. A movie this this old and looks this great uh, is is just outstanding. Um, and uh, yeah, the the art direction, the sets, the score, the acting is all top notch. The directing and what Kobayashi does with the camera, and you know the depth of field he gets out of some of these sets is incredible, um, and really needs to be seen to be believed and to be and to be heard to be believed because, like we said, the score is really a creative, uh, just experimental monument um and it is it was it's refreshing to go back and see some of these movies that are more willing to play with silence and minimalist sounds uh to create a spooky atmosphere like i i like a lot of newer horror movies but one thing that i hate is the sound design and it's all constantly loud noises and jump scares and booze and, <laughs> and i mean that was i liked the new version of uh it but the, my biggest complaint was the sound design. It's constantly boogity 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 and <laughs> and loud noises and loud sounds. And uh, uh, I want to yeah. read this quote from the composer that's in the, the Criterion booklet. And he says, "I wanted to create an atmosphere of terror, but if the music is constantly saying 'Watch out, be scared,' then all the tension is lost." Hear that, people. Please. Yeah, that is that is the antithesis of modern horror films. <laughs> I know, God, and it, I mean, I love going back to like the old, like the John Carpenter scores and the really moody stuff and stuff like this. And this is this is a plea from me to let's get more minimalist and and atmospheric with our our horror scores, and let's not just use it to to have something jump out of a closet or whatever. It's so predictable these days, and this took all of that away and just creeped you out by itself. Yeah, and it's even more annoying when I see a movie like It that I do think is good and has, like, things going for it, and it's like, oh, you guys are resorting to that? Why? Like, you're better than yeah. that. You don't, if you, with, you would be great, you would be just as great without it. You'd be better without, you don't need to go for the low-hanging fruit here, <laughs> you know, but... Whatever. Maybe I'm just an old grump. Well, I am, but... Cantankerous old man? 
Yeah, but no, that's quite on. Uh, check it out. Um, the Blu-ray is well worth your money. Um, and uh, yep. yeah, buy it. And it's a great thing to watch this time of year. Um, uh, it's it's good stuff, and um, yeah, it, and it's probably one of the best looking color movies you can watch even to it, this day. It is the one of the best films. I mean, visually, it's an absolute masterpiece. Like, I can't think of anything offhand right now that I could even compare it to. Yeah, and and I mean, you can see how maybe someone like stanley kubrick or someone might have seen this movie or look at like um obayashi's uh the toho movie house has a lot of the same visually that kind of artificiality with the the set the the elaborate painted backgrounds and stuff like that so i have to i have to think that those filmmakers probably saw this movie at some point um but no, it's it's great stuff, and uh, it's well worth worth your time. It's a long movie, but it's worth your time. And like yeah, like I said, if you have a problem with the length, it's it's an anthology. You can just watch the stories separate. Yep. Easy, yep. easy stuff. Easy peasy. Yeah. <laughs> um. So, do you have anything you want to add to 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 this one here? Yeah, man. I think we uh, we covered it all. Yeah, I think we did. So, uh, thank you for listening and. Uh, have a great October. Um, tune in to will to some more horror reviews we'll be doing throughout the month. Uh, and yeah, until then, do all the cool October stuff. Um, watch horror movies, eat candy, listen to the Misfits. Those are the three things you have to do. Um, all right. Well, I guess that's it. Bye. Bye.